want to go live on video but are a bit unsure where to start? Or maybe you already go live a lot but you are scared to sell. Download for free the Live Authentic Storytelling Guide, Six Steps to Infuse Storytelling into Your Live Videos. You'll get practical structure to help you convert your audience from raving fans to loyal customers. Go to www.livestorytellingguide.com and get your free guide today. Okay, my friends, today's guest is Emma Grant, dear friend, student, amazing human, and you'll see why in today's episode. I'm going to read you directly what she wrote me when I asked for her bio. Here it is. Emma Grant, 54, four offspring, 19, 16, 14, 12. Grew up in Scotland, South Wales, London. Varied career, stage manager in London, proofreader in New York, cherry picker in France, goose scare and nursery teacher on the Isle of Call, project manager and fundraiser for charities in Oban. Love theater, reading, gardening, djembe drumming, qigong, meditating, learning. Love being a mom, working as a coach, therapist, holder of space for meditation. I'm on the path of the heart. And she really is on the path of the heart with a wicked sense of humor. Today's episode has some tough moments in it. Trigger warning. But she navigates life through and with so much humor and joy. I really, really adore this human being, and I can't wait for you to get to know her. This is the Creative Soulpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Demas. Let's go. Okay, friends, welcome back to the Nick Demas Show. I have with me today my friend, colleague, student, all-around amazing human being. Welcome, Emma. Thank you. And she's got an amazing accent, first of all. So just just hearing you talk is going to be a treat for people, for our American audience anyway. <laughs> I was wondering about, uh, you know, bringing in some good Scottish expressions and confusing everyone. I'll just go with the flow. <laughs> please confuse us with your Scottish expressions, so I have to go look them up. That needs to be a goal today, is to confuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start by giving everyone a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, the type of people you serve, those questions. Hmm. So I run my business, Heartfelt Change, and it's sort of, it's a new business for me, but it's, it feels like a a staging poster, a right place to be in my own journey so I had a bit of a, a rough and tumble childhood which oh, there's there's many stories in that but where I am where I'm sitting today with it is is looking at these things that I may have looked at before as being sort of horrible events I look at them now as sort of opportunities for life teaching me something or me needing to to learn something so the work I do now my my business is heartfelt change like I said and I inspire people to find joy in their lives to maybe come to terms with with how their life is with all the the bumps and the ups and downs of it but a sense of quiet a sense of 
touching that sort of inner inner stillness within you while you're in your whatever life is chucking at you uh so i run uh mindfulness courses and i hold meditation space and i do i work one-to-one with with clients as well and yeah i just i just love the opportunity just to support people to find a a happier way a joyful way to walk their life and you have you've got a wicked sense of humor you have this great joy you've got a credible family but as you mentioned your past wasn't always like that so back us up a bit because i think that people need to understand sort of how you got to where you are how did that happen i think we all go through things and not everyone finds the tools that you found that has the fortitude that you have. So back us up to what, when you say some some rough and tumble stuff, what does that mean? I think one of the things that I did a lot for a long, long time was just absolutely suppress to myself what that what that meant. I didn't sort of, I had this whole storyline in my head that, okay, you know, childhood might have been a bit difficult but you know basically it was all okay and I goodness I was I was in my 40s when I started having sort of flashbacks to to stuff that had happened in the past and it's quite a full-on story in ways but but I can tell it now because I have walked I have walked through it so so just to give a wee bit of a wee bit of background so my my mum is uh, manic depressive my father is alcoholic which is quite common on the west coast we we don't have a great relationship with drink um, in this part of the in this part of the land or some people would say we have a great relationship to drink but in my experience it's maybe not a great relationship to drink so so anyway so my parents divorced so my mum was bringing us up pretty uh, pretty much by herself and my dad's sort of coming in and out and goodness there was there's folk who carry manic depression and they can sort of carry it in a steady way or they can carry it with support of family or whatever. The way she carried it, her her personality, in my opinion, is quite quite a selfish person. So there was many, many decisions that she made where, you know, me and my brother, our safety or our well-being was not in the forefront. So that led us into quite a lot of, you know, dangerous situations like, you know, she'd be hooking up with different people. And it was not a very safe childhood and I think um I was reading a book recently and they were talking about one word one word that comes to you for a city or one word that comes to you for your for your family and looking back at my family life then the one word that comes is is fear I just didn't know you don't know who's going to meet you at the door which which mum is going to meet you you don't know whether your mum's actually going to be there at the door or not or is it going to be the social work and you're away you're away off or you're being fostered by your aunties or uncles again forever so it was all it was all a bit crazy and then mixed in with that like I say my mum not always walking into safe relationships so you know how it's like there's folk out there who their path is to be a predator and they have a radar for for folk who are in a vulnerable situation yeah and I would certainly say that me and my brother were in vulnerable situations quite a lot of the time so so I basically ended up being abused by folk along the along the way so there's that going on there's my depression there's there's like alcoholic father there's child abuse going on sexual abuse going on and then uh, and this is where it becomes like sort of 
movie like or like one of those Jodie Pico books where you've got the sad little child sitting in the front looking looking awfully sorry so at 14 my mum took us into a cult and then there was all sorts of manipulation and abuse that went on there as well so that in a nutshell is the first 21 years of my life so let me ask I mean there's so much there right but let me ask a couple questions one is when your mother took you into a cult what was she searching for do you know I think she was searching for a sense of belonging. I mean, you know, the, we have such a such a desire to belong to something, don't we? Yeah. And for my mum, I've got a lot of empathy for my mum actually, because she would always like when she when she would go high, I would become aware of family members becoming fearful of her, and that's some of the fear was actually when I say I think of fear, I don't always mean my own fear within my childhood. I mean there was just my mum was fearful of going high again. She was fearful of going psychotic. Yeah. Anyone around us was fearful of mum going high again and all the repercussions of that. So for my mum, it was a really disconnected life that she ended up living. You know, she'd we'd be living somewhere. She'd be maybe a wee bit stable for a bit and then she'd start going high. She'd get involved in a dramatic society. She'd be doing this, be doing that. She'd have a sense of community growing around her. She then go psychotic and lose that immediately and everyone would be terrified of her and they wouldn't want to touch her with a barge pole. So then she'd move on. She'd move on to somewhere else, something else. I see. So I think what she was searching for was people who were maybe who had a different level of judging, you know, and, and in a cult it's just it's a it's a different it's a different set of social norms, isn't it? And it sounds like you were on a roller coaster ride as a kid. Oh, it was great fun, right? <laughs> I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was. But it's like as a kid, you, and this is the thing where I, I, I was like walking out of it. I just pretended like it's, it's so much easier to pretend that everything is okay. Yeah. Than to actually face up to it's maybe not okay it's it's easier because this is, this is the thing it's like if you're sitting there in this dichotomy of your mum putting you in these situations or your relationship with your your dad not being great as a kid you just want to love these people yeah. so you end up with this love hate relationship so there's like there was the physical external roller coasters of moving around all the time and just chaotic things happening but then there's all the emotional roller coasters going on within that as well yeah and how did you maintain a sense of self during that because you clearly did in some form or fashion you protected yourself to maintain a sense of self looking back on it now in reflection when I started having the the flashbacks for events in my in my life and I started trying to trying to piece things together and sort of make sense of it in a way that it was never going to be made sense of but to try and sort of make some sense of it I found I'd left myself like a little breadcrumb trail of little little bits of writing Mm. and little little things that I'd written to myself and I don't know in in hindsight I would look back and I would say that there was a you know I'm hugely stubborn and sort of just determined to survive but I feel like there was also there was key moments where there was just enough and those key moments of, of, of people appearing in your life mm. or someone being there for just long enough just to make you feel like you were going to be okay somehow. 
Just enough light peered through the door. Just enough. And a friend of mine described that once recently. He, you know, I was just chatting with him, and he said, he said you had an angel on your shoulder. Yeah. And in hindsight, that is how it feels. It feels like a key moment. It's like when, you know, even when I was first born, you know, my mum got, she went high and uh, she was in hospital within like a couple of weeks, I think. My dad's sister, my auntie Ina, I went and basically lived with her for a year. And in that household, there was loads of other kids and there was, it was a busy, busy household, but it was just suffused with love just unconditional love and I didn't even know until I was much older I think till I was in my 20s or 30s that I'd even had that first year of my life with that auntie but I'd always felt a really strong bond for her and I feel like I had that year of being unconditionally loved so much that that sort of that carried me through Mm other times and then there's other people that just appeared at times yeah so I think I think a combination of you know a strong resolve in myself which I can thank life for for giving me that sense of resolve mixed in with just enough just enough to sort of keep on going or find some some balance within it even if that balance for a long time was actually just shutting it out and pretending that none of it had happened. So then at 14, you said? Yeah, I was 14, just turning into 15. What a precarious time, a teen time to be in a cult. I know, I know, I know. And I've got kids now and I've I've been very aware that as as they've grown up and sort of hit key moments in their lives, that's actually when something else has, has been remembered in me or, mm. you know, I sort of look at look at their lives and think, you know, they're, they're just regular teens and they get all, you know, they have meltdowns over, you know, their hair not looking right or their, you know, whatever whatever yeah. it is or a, a, an exam coming up. And there's part of me that wants to hold them in that because for them, that meltdown is real. That yeah. roller coaster for them is absolutely real in the moment. And there's the other part of me that is just doing a wee dance off to the side going, that's all you have to worry about. That's all you have to worry about. You know, it's like, yeah this is great you know yeah. I've done my job <laughs> yeah yeah and what was it like then in the cult like what is it like to be in I don't think very many people have had the experience of being in a cult so we can't really relate so what is that like yeah. a cult is obviously highly highly manipulative and I was thinking about describing this like if I if I said that in a cult you are discouraged to spend any time with anyone else but while I was in the cult no one explicitly came up to me and said you can't spend any time with anyone else so frame it another way and go if you're in a cult you will not be encouraged to spend time with your family and friends Mm. and if you think of it that way the manipulation is so strong so you're not given any time to have with anyone else Mm. there's a sense built up inside of us and them so somehow your friends that you had before your family they are outside of the circle they are they are not as good or as worthy as you and none of this is explicitly stated it's it's the cleverness of of manipulation that you see in in physical abuse or sexual abuse or emotional abuse it's 
the manipulation that goes on is is huge. So on a practical level, you know, you're just you're kept really, really busy. There was lots of sort of educationals. It was a it was the, the what they hung their cult on was political stuff. So there was educationals about, you know, current political events. And there was very much the, the wrong way to think and the right way to think. And a lot of your time was taken up with just going on demonstrations or and it all felt really right on because you're you know, I was I was lefty and going on all these fabulous demonstrations. But even within all the left wing groups, this group was set off to the side because it didn't actually want you to to relate to anyone else, even within that community. Right. So it was like we were we were separate. Even within the community of left wing organizations. You know, there's a whole power structure within it as well. And that there's a lot of um, shaming that goes on for like any, you know, if you made a mistake, if you if you had said the wrong thing in public or if you if you had misunderstood, you know, if, like if you asked a question about a text that you were reading, you would be quite publicly shamed almost for well, not publicly, but within the group, you would be shamed yeah. for not understanding things properly and what was the matter with you and you were a petit bourgeois whatever you know whatever whatever language was being used and then I know for some people there was a lot of manipulation around money so there was a lot of like you always handed in a tithe for your wages which you know can be a lovely thing to do can't it it's, it can be a lovely thing to think you're going to donate 10% of your earnings to you know whatever the good local gurdwara or you know there's lovely ways of doing it but the tithe that was going on within this group was basically going to support the lifestyle of the the top cadre yeah so some folk were exploited financially and others were exploited sexually so you're basically kind of being groomed so I mean at at 15 I remember being in the office because we produced a newspaper and stuff it was always really busy you're always really busy there were really really important things to do so I remember in the office the various folk sort of in the upper parts of the leadership remember them having this discussion while I'm in the room about, you know, who was going to pop my cherry. Wow. And it was like I was being offered like the lamb to the slaughter. But if if anyone was, you know, showed any sort of hesitancy over the, the sexual stuff that was going on, it was you're approved, you know, you're, you know, they sort of bring in almost religious, you're closed minded, you're, you know, whatever. It would it wouldn't be you have a choice. There would be shaming within your lack of ability just to make yourself free and available for anyone how does your 15 year old brain process that well I took it on I I thought I mean because the other the other side of this the other side of this which is it's like with any spiritual journey that you go on there's the lightness and the darkness Mm -hmm. to what you're seeing in yourself yeah? yeah so I could tell this story as you know poor little me victim terrible and you know on the one hand yeah I I wouldn't wish that I wouldn't wish what I experienced on anyone but there's also a part of me that recognizes that at age 14 15 to have all these people basically telling you that you're beautiful and wanting you desiring you well that's a good boost for your ego isn't it Sure. And there was there was something in me that was enjoying that. However, you know, and I and I, and I wouldn't 
dear to see this about anyone else's experience. This is my experience. This is how I understand my experience. You know, it's it's tough to say. It's tough to. There's something in my personality that enjoyed being promoted as the the clever, clever, clever 15 year old that could take on all these political views and go and speak and would be put in front of a TV camera and was was invited round the table of the the top cadre to come along for dinner. You know, there was a part of me that absolutely loved that. So I suppose I'm just quite sober about my role, my involvement, while not judging myself for it at all. I can totally relate to that because you, you know that I was sexually abused, as does the audience, if you listen to the podcast. And at roughly the same age, it started around 12 to 15 and through that period until I was almost 17. And there was a part of me that not only enjoyed the attention, but almost looked for it, almost searched it out. There, were, I love my parents. Do not get me wrong. They know this. But I think there was a part of me that didn't feel seen by them. And so I went and I, and I, I found somebody who would see me, or at least what I thought. Mm was seeing me. Mm. So it's a different story that we have, but that idea of, yeah, I like that attention. Mm. I liked it. And I I think if you're gonna walk out of this or for for me, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna walk out of this and be able to to have safe hands to hold other people on their journey, then it's good to have that sobriety for the role that we played. And not in a, you know, mea culpa, you know, because how could I judge my 15-year-old self for anything? And, and you know, a, a more flippant way that I have spoken about that before is almost, you know, well, if at 15, I was welcoming that to some degree, how crazy was the first 14 years? Right. You know, so so I know, <laughs> you know, on, on a more flippant level, I know that I didn't have a really big barometer for normal. But still, there are choices I made on that journey. And I, it's like, it's, it's almost out of respect for myself that I'm owning some of it. Yeah. I mean, I spent many years wallowing yeah. in my victimhood, to be honest. And it took me some time to take the lens back, right? To pull the camera back and be like, okay, well, what part, what, what part did you have control of? Yes. Was I manipulated? Was I groomed? Was I, yes, yes, yes. And... Let's honor all of that. But and what part of it was me that even though I was 15 and no, I could not understand fully the bigger picture. There was a part of my journey that that needed to happen in some form or fashion for me to have an opportunity for an, for an understanding about myself. And the way that I view it, actually, is that it's given me the potentiality for empathy, for understanding to be able to turn back, like you say, and hold my hand for somebody else in a way that I wouldn't have been able to have if I hadn't gone through that. Because mm. a lot of that can feel quite shameful, can't it? And, and yeah. I think when you're Oof. when you're first telling people, you know, that you've been abused, particularly as a young kid, there's a lot of talk about the entirety of the shame not being not being yours you know it's the it's yeah. it's someone else's it's their baggage it's theirs to take on but there's something missing in that there's a deeper 
there's a deeper connection to life and trusting that life knows what it's doing that is missing if you just don't look at what what your role yeah. play what your role in it was and you have to get there right like you have to get there it's like you said i like for many years i didn't tell anybody and and i was sort of internalizing so much shame so how did you unhook yourself from your past how did you move because okay this happened right now you're an adult you seemingly somehow made it out of the cult which you can tell us how and then how did you begin to break it apart honestly i kept it i kept steel doors on it till i was i mean how old am i now i'm 50 i'm like my my one of my daughters teases me and she adds five or six years onto my age which has put me now in a complete state of confusion over what age Look, I, I don't know how old am. i am um, <laughs> Um, so I think I'm I'm 50, 54. Let's say 54. So it wasn't till I was like 46. I mean, honestly, like 46, 47, that I started having memories. And the first memory I had was actually smell stuff, which is is true for for a lot of PTSD stuff. It, it sometimes it, something's triggered, a memory's triggered through a smell. And yeah, so I started having memories, and the first was of my my stepdad. And I remember going and asking my mum, who was well physically quite close at the time, and asking her, and she, and she just kind of, you know, was saying, "Oh no, you know, you're stuck," because we we went to live with him when I was seven or eight, so that was when that was like one of the stages of abuse for me. So, so yeah, she was denying it, and then I kind of left it for a bit, and I tried to speak to someone, but they weren't a very good, they were not a good counsellor at all, so that kind of closed down again. And then I met, you know, so I started having all these memories, things coming back, things disturbing me more and more. And, you know, obviously up to that point, I'd managed to suppress things enough and have all these coping mechanisms that I didn't feel too much out of balance. And then these memories start coming back, sensory perceptions, little flashbacks, stories. And I remember my life as like still images I could remember very very little about my life apart from it was like it was like there was a movie playing and all I could remember was was the freeze frame Mm. freeze frame here freeze frame here freeze frame here and I suppose I was as my kids are getting older and I'm looking at the ages that they're at and I just can't quite pretend to myself anymore that the experience they're having is anything like the experience that I had, which just bumped my unhealthy balance that I'd found. It bumped it enough for me to want to to start unpeeling it all. So I found this guy, uh, my teacher, Ron Reek, who I still work with to this day. He works very quickly. He's such an astute man. He's so compassionate. He's so, he's, he's amazing. Anyway, I found him. I found him through a weekend workshop to start off with. And uh, went to that weekend workshop and just, it was like, it was like the, the doors had just been opened and these, these floodgates, you know, it was just, it was just amazing. And, and within sort of four or five days, no, probably three days of, of having been with him, I was, I was emailing him just with a subject heading help and, you know, arranged to, to go have some one-to-ones with him and, you know, work with him very intensively. He, the way he works with people, which is how I've, I've now trained with him, the way he works with people is 
you know, like he's he's helped me to get to that acknowledgement of the lightness and the dark within your yeah. within yourself, the bits that you don't want to acknowledge, to to go and meet the bits that you don't want to meet, and to to not feed it, to not fight stuff, to not flee from stuff, and just go meet it, and just just by going and meeting what emotions, what's what's still sitting in your body, you know, it's like you, there's not a great need to go back and rehash all the stories or even remember all the stories. If the emotion's still sitting in your body, it doesn't matter right. whether you remember the story or not to some degree. If the emotion's there, it's true for you. So, yeah, so working with him, you know, it's been pretty intensive over the last, so that's what, seven years mm-hmm. that I've been working with him. So... Aye, it's been quite intensive, but it's been a long time coming. You know, it's been a long time coming. I'd sort of dabbled in like a bit of shamanism before and sort of touched off and run a mile. And I'd done some journeying with people and touched stuff and run a mile. But really the last sort of seven years has been the unpacking, the unpacking of it all. And at what point did you say, I'm taking control, I'm going to drive my own bus, at what point was, like, the shift? What, like, what made you say, I'm going to go to this guy, I'm going to commit? Because I think, like you said, you ran for so many times. Like, what was that shift? What was that moment? I think the first shift was actually kind of desperation, really. Because mm. I had the workshop with him. A friend of mine invited me to come onto the workshop. I didn't really know what it was about. It was a breath workshop, connection, awareness. But I was attracted enough to to go. And then, yeah, just feelings of desperation after. I remember, I do remember, like, I think it was like the second or third one-to-one session I had with him afterwards. And we're, we're sort of talking about stuff. And, and he said to me, he said, look, there's, there's two paths you can go here. You can go down like the purely personal development path and we can go through your stories and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Or we can just go to the heart. And you can just walk the path of the heart and, and meet yourself with compassion. And he had all these, I mean, I can't remember all the explanations he gave. And I would say it's it's funny you using the, the words, when did you decide to take control? I would almost say, when did I decide to give up? Let go. Control. Yeah. <laughs> Surrender. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it was actually, you know, for so long, and I still, I still touch this. I still go in, go in and out of it. The, the sense of needing to be in control, because it was all so chaotic. Yeah. So it feels like it feels like chaos is unsafe. But what I was missing for the for those first twenty-one years was any conscious sense of my own being within that my own connection to life to the divine my own my own being within that so that's why the chaos was scary and these days it's like so I've given up that control to the degree that I can to the degree that I'm able to in each moment but my intention is to give up that control but it doesn't it doesn't feel scary anymore Mm -hmm. because I can come back to that being part of me that can observe the stories I might get hooked up into. So then at a certain point in the healing journey in the process, you were like, okay, I'm ready to help others. Yeah. How did that come about? 
but I'd had a one-to-one to him. So I was like, you know, kind of wide open emotionally and just in a very kind of open space. And Ron had asked me to stop back and help do a case study with someone he was training. So I was asked to come and sit in. So it's a, there's three of us there. And so this is one person who's been training with Ron, who is now being the practitioner and I'm the, the client, the pretend client coming in. So I'm sitting there and I'm just being me as a client because at that point I was too, I couldn't conceive of trying to hold anyone else, pretend to be anyone else. I was just still very much me. So I'm, I'm sitting there and I could feel this guy trying to support me and I could feel how different it was from how Ron supported me and how it felt a bit like the other counsellor that I'd been to before and how they'd done it and it didn't feel right. And then Ron is there coaching the guy who's learning. And part of my brain is hearing the theory of how one could do this in a step-by-step way, but while Ron is also holding presence. And at the other hand, because Ron could see I was going into distress with how this other guy was holding me, he's turning to me and coaching me in the moment as well with his complete and utter presence of moment and compassion. In that little triumvirate, I thought I want to be able to do this for people. Mm. And this is this is having such an em- empowering effect on me. I just want to hold space for for others in the same in the same way. That's beautiful and powerful. It's an amazing way that that he holds space, and it's. You know, he's there's various structures and stuff, and anyone who works with me knows that there's various. You know, I've got exercises that I do, or I've got, or we might just be working in dialogue. For me, I know I'm only as good as how present I am yeah. in that moment to support clients. If I'm in my head, or if I'm bringing my own agenda of what they should be doing, or psychoanalyzing, or trying to fix, or whatever just it's like stop the session now and just go have a cup of tea you know (laughs) yeah it's it's how how present you can be just to in yourself touching your own being touching that part of you and just holding the space for someone else and whether that's reading an exercise or or whatever but it's that welcoming in of life's energy which you can then hold others with as well and then you began teaching yeah, and I met this other amazing guy. Who's that? Nick Nemos. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd, I'd started up my business, and it was like October 2019, and COVID aside, well, not even not even get into all that. So start up my business, and you know, I, I I know what I want to do. I want to do this, and I want to do that, but I'm still sitting with a whole heap of you know imposter syndrome or issues around money and and I still touch these again it's not like it's it layers isn't it it's oh, just it's, it's just layers layered. of awareness yeah. for all these things absolutely but I was you know sitting there with this great desire to run my business and to support people but just not somehow just not quite making that leap into doing it professionally and in this country there's there's quite a lot of support for we businesses and well big businesses as well um, there's a, a government-funded group called Business Gateway who hold lots of amazing things about how to do Instagram reels or how to set up your website or how to whatever, how to, how to. 
What they don't address, though, is the layers of reasons as to why you might not be doing those things. Right. And they will purely come at it on the personality level. Mm. So it, say I was at one of their courses and, and you know, you're, you're not on Instagram, right? Let me, let me teach you the technology of, of doing Instagram. And that's not actually, that's not what's holding me back from, from doing it. So, so that was where, you know, I had this transformation moment working with, with you doing the real stories that sell and how I, how I describe it to other people, to friends is I, I say that you hold a combination of space where yes, you're learning the practical stuff, the launch runway, the Instagram reel, the whatever, but when someone in the group says they can't do something, you're going into the layers behind the reasons for doing that you know you're asking much deeper questions and I mean you know when the, the first time the first time that I came across you and and we were doing it was a webinar I think you were holding and the first thing you did was right let's get everyone we're on zoom and it's like right let's get everyone just to close your eyes we'll just start with a meditation and you had me at that it was like you know anyone who's going to start this really professional business attitude to your own business to promote that within you but they're going to start that with a meditation. So you're connected into yourself. Like, yep, I'm with you. <laughs> Had you at the first hello, as they yep, say. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Yeah. Well, that's part of that for me is that it's a, this sounds kind of funny, but a weeding out process. You're either going to be attracted to that or not attracted to it. And if you're not, then you're not. The work that we do, like you're saying in the, in the program, goes so much deeper that you're not going to be willing to be a part of that. And so I don't don't want you as a client or a student if you're not willing to sit and meditate and come into presence, as you said, because holding presence with people is more important than learning any one tool more yeah. than learning Instagram reels or learning how the launch runway works, because anybody, like you said, can teach that. Yeah. You can Google it. You can't Google are the layers. And it's that similarity, I suppose, you know, for me, having having met Ron, and as I was saying earlier, that sense of him, the, the presence that he holds, and therefore, as he was teaching me and training me and putting across, you know, that, that sense of you're only as good as the ability to hold presence in yourself, and then coming across yourself and just feeling that same energy. The lovely thing is that when I see this with Ron and with you is... There's a real multitude of people that are attracted to both of you. It's not like a hippie set or it's not like gardening set, you know, or, or yeah. whatever, whatever sort of community of interest, the shared interest. And this is what you're getting at when you're talking about weeding people out. The shared interest is the desire to be present, the desire to be authentic to yourself, whether at times like we touched on before, that authenticity doesn't actually taste very nice. Yeah. But it's still authentic. But it's still real. Yeah. Yeah. And welcome in the community. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, since I've worked with you, my business has, you know, it's been doing pretty well. <laughs> that's that's a huge statement for a Scot to make. <laughs> when you said pretty well, the Americans are like, well, does that mean it's not going very well? <laughs> There's no braggadociousness <laughs> just... in Scotland the way there is in America. <laughs> no, no, we're kind of 
stuck our teeth at that a wee bit. It's it's so West Coast as well. It's like um, it's fairly understated in this in this part of the world. So let me put it another way. Since working with you, <laughs> I have stopped working in all the other capacities that I used to work, and I know I'm now solely working with my business, Heartbelt Change. That's huge. Aye, that's the that's the Scots of. It's doing pretty well. It's doing all right. You know, I don't want to say too much though. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because ancestrally, we, I was having a conversation with my teacher about how, you know, I'm from the Midwest of America, particularly the northern upper Midwest, and we are very similar in that we're not allowed to be braggadocious. We're not allowed to like, like, it's like considered, well, we don't discuss our feelings first and foremost, let alone be joyous, let alone actually like, you know, believe our own stink. None of that is allowed. And so it's interesting that, you know, there's that connection there because of course I, I have a little Scott in me, by the way, yeah. a little Scottish, yeah. Yeah. you know, a little, a little Scottish in me. So it, that's not surprising to me in any way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Before we go, there's two things. One, how can everyone find you and work with you? Because I know there are people out there right now that need what you have to offer. How can they find you? So they can find me on my website, which is heartfeltchange.co.uk. And they can find me on Instagram sporadically with ever increasingly wonderful reels being presented on that. (laughs) (laughs) Getting over myself for that one. And where else? Facebook. Yeah, do stuff on Facebook. So all my services, I mean, one of the one of the joys, one of the joys of the COVID is that uh, we've all embraced this technology much more, isn't it? So whereas before I would very much have thought that my audience was, you know, sort of limited geographically to my own wee area, uh, you know, I hold my courses on Zoom now. I do one-to-one sessions on Zoom. I have twice weekly meditation circle that I hold on Zoom. So, you know, it's like you can you can come to me from wherever, you know, and and I really embrace that the cultural exchange, the differences. And but what I love about it though actually is like with all that well the different cultures behind is actually the commonality that we have yeah. of we're all breathing. You know, my breath that I exhale now, it may take a year to reach you, but those little molecules that I just exhaled, it's all part of the same world, isn't it? And, you know, mm. we're all just... It's so beautiful. I use that sort of, you know, when I'm sitting in a meditation, which, you know, holding space for meditation, just that sense of connection to everyone in the universe, breathing in, breathing out, is it's very strong in me, so... Yeah, so Zoom does it on a practical level. It really does. It's amazing. <laughs> I think that we all thought, like, does this, is this actually going to work? And it does. Energy at work actually works through Zoom. Yeah. Which really shows you that it, it is just energy. Yeah. Okay. And the second thing, the first thing was I wanted everyone to know where you where to find you. I said there was a, there were two things. The second thing is we failed. No. And by I mean we failed, I was waiting for a bunch of Scottish terms that I didn't know and we didn't get any of them during this entire episode. Come on. I did say we. Okay, we. Pinky? 
weed. Do you know what a pinky? pinky? Do you know what a pinky is? No, what's a pinky? Uh, you could say you could say you've got a scalp in your pinky. A scalp in your pinky. Aye. I don't know what scalp or pinky <laughs> is. <laughs> well, a scalp in your pinky is quite sore, or it can be quite sore, and it's quite hard to get out. You might need to get someone else to help you to get out your scalp in a pinky. But you've got two pinkies. In case well, in case anyone's <laughs> wondering, you do have two pinkies. It's not a one pinky job. It's a two pinky job. So your pinkies are your wee finger. Right. And a scalp. Your pinky finger. Yeah, yeah, pinky finger. And your scalp is, I don't know, it's like a wee piece of wood or anything that might get stuck in your finger. You know, like a wee. Oh, a splinter. A splinter, you that's the word. Yeah, yeah. So a scalp. Hi. A scalp. A scalp in your pinky. Hi. My, my accent's terrible. <laughs> say, say it again. Scalp in your pinky. Scalp in, in your pinky. Yeah. All right. I'm going to teach you a sign off, right? So um, see if you're doing a wee toast with someone. So I would say pause like us. Pause like pause, us. Pause like us. And then you respond to that. Guy few. Guy few. Uh, oh, no. I'm missing a bit here. Pause like us. Guy few. No. Oh, here we go. Here's Teus. That's it. Here's Teus. It's a cheer. Here's Teus. And then Here's you, you say pause like us. Was like us. I say guy few. And then you say, and they're all deed. And they're all deed. Right, so we'll try it, okay? Oh gosh, I forgot mine already. <laughs> <laughs> say it together, we'll say it together, okay. Here's Teus. Was like us. Guy few. And they're all deed. And they're all deed. <laughs> yeah. So that's basically, you know, here's to us. Who's like us? Not very many. And they're all deed. So whoever is like us, they're all deed. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Thank you for <laughs> your deep honesty and for going there and sharing in a very vulnerable way and full presence, full presence, honestly. Thank you. It's been, it's been a good experience. Thank you. Ah, and I know that, like I said, there are people that need your help and support and you're passing it on what you've learned. And I think that's really yeah important yeah and i want to honor you for that so here's like us guy <laughs> few no sorry we don't we do did it we did it backwards <laughs> we'll just say goodbye for now i uh, i all right i all right I. cheery 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 okay there we go cheery. thank you all so much and uh, we'll see you next time if you enjoyed today's podcast be sure to leave us a review on itunes you can even take a photo of this particular episode and text it to a friend that may need to hear the message from today's podcast episode. Thank you all so much. We'll see you next time.